0: All right, <laughs> now you do the welcome thing, okay. and I'll be the and.
1: Okay, Uh, hang on. Welcome to First Reading Podcast. No, I have to go slower than that. That was the other thing. That. <clears throat> uh, welcome to the first ever episode of First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers. I'm Rachel Wren.
0: And I'm Tim McNinch. We're grad students in the Hebrew Bible program at Emory University, and we're also preachers. We want to encourage preachers to preach from the Old Testament.
1: What a concept! And (laughs) to give you some resources for doing that faithfully and with integrity.
0: Yeah, we want to talk about, uh, first of all, literary and historical context. We want to know what's behind and around this text that helps it make sense.
1: Uh, We'll also address linguistic stuff. What would have tickled the Hebrew-speaking ear that would be missed in English translation?
0: And we also want to try to flag some exegetical pitfalls, those easy mistakes to make that might lead you theologically astray.
1: And finally, we'll prime the pump with at least a couple potential preaching angles for this text.
0: Now, every once in a while, we'll also have guest experts, top-shelf biblical scholars, chipping in their expertise to deepen the level of insight we can offer. This week, we have Dr. Jacob Wright with us. We'll introduce him in a few minutes.
1: And hopefully, this conversation can give you all, our dear listeners, our dear preachers, some resources and some energy for crafting sermons that feel exciting for you and relevant for your own congregations.
0: So we should we should have somebody read the text, right?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. Definitely. Um Do you uh have any suggestions? Well,
0: it, it happens to be my mom's birthday today, what? the day that we're recording this. No
1: way. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um what what if I called her and got her to read it?
1: <laughs> Great. And if not, we can um sing happy birthday on her voicemail.
0: All right. Hello. Hey, mom. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? good uh well first of all happy birthday thank you <laughs> so are are you uh you game yes, I'm
2: gonna, uh, okay
0: <laughs> yeah if you need to take that you can my mom so, um she directs a non daycare up there in michigan I'm not kidding. yeah
2: cool okay so she's up so i'm gonna do it here
0: all right so why don't you just give it that little introduction and then go ahead and read for us
2: okay The first reading this week is from 2 Samuel 7, 1-14a, but I'll read through verse 16. Now when the king was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Whenever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever.
0: Awesome! Thanks, mom.
2: That was wonderful. Could you hear the beep in the background? <laughs> I don't, I don't,
0: I don't think I heard it.
2: <laughs> okay, it went on for like sixty seconds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, you did a great job. I think that'll work just fine.
2: Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye.
0: Bye, bye.
1: <clears> bye. <throat> yeah, I had a really interesting reaction. I mean, when she started to read, I started to cry. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that, but i um, it, it's kind of hard to put into words, but yeah, hearing that voice and hearing her accent, I mean, it's who I have in mind of why I wanted to do this in the first place.
0: So, Rachel, why did you want to do this thing?
1: Yeah. So I had uh, an idea for a podcast. Um, I'm an ordained Lutheran pastor and served in Southwest Minnesota and um have always really enjoyed the Old Testament, um, but realized that when I was trying to preach out of it, I didn't know how to do it faithfully. Now, fast forward, I'm surrounded by resources that make me feel confident in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. And I really want to be able to share that with people who may want to preach from the Old Testament and feel a sense of discomfort with how to do that well. Um, So, Tim, why was this something you were interested in doing?
0: Well, yeah, I was also, I was a pastor. I was a church planting pastor in the Association of Vineyard Churches for quite a while, and uh, then... More recently, I've been trained in the Presbyterian Church, USA. I'm not ordained uh, in the PCUSA, but I've made it all the way through the preparatory process. And as I look back, even on my own record of preaching over the years, I leaned much, much more heavily on the New Testament than on the Old Testament. And as I look around, that seems to be the case, even for churches that follow a lectionary that includes Old Testament readings. Most often, the texts that are chosen for... Uh, for sermons, for preaching from, they're the New Testament readings. I'm hoping that a a podcast like this can help to revive that uh, spiritual language of the Old Testament in the lives of our churches.
1: Then maybe you've had this experience too, Tim, but I can't tell you how many times when I tell people what I'm doing for a PhD, the response is is one of two things. One is why? Mm -hmm. Why would you want to do that? And the second was, oh, I don't like the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah.
0: And if there's any sort of myth that I'd love to dispel, it's is even in churches— people think that the Old Testament has a different God, that it's the, yes. the mean, oh, grumpy, preach. judgmental God, Amen. whereas the New Testament has Jesus, you know, <laughs> nice, kind, <laughs> friendly Jesus who would never hurt a flea, <laughs>
1: right.
0: Right. <laughs> right? So, uh, I mean, that, that old uh, Marcionite heresy of wanting to cut out the Old Testament yeah. because it presents a different kind of God than, than Christians think that they know from their New Testament, that's still alive and well in our churches today. Now, do you think it's really a good idea for us to be following the lectionary for this?
1: Oh, such a good question. One of the things that we hope to do in following the lectionary is to give the lectionary a little bit more context than it offers. Mm -hmm. So I think um, this podcast is not just for people using the lectionary, but I would hope that for people who are using the lectionary, this can encourage you all to feel a little bit more comfortable in what text is being plopped down into your lap week after week.
0: So that's, that's great. Uh, why don't we get right into it?
1: Yeah, let's start with a little bit of literary context, um, because as much as the lectionary might feel like it, these stories don't just come up out of the blue, and they're not just in service to the gospel lesson. So let's talk a little bit about the home that this story finds itself in. Um, If we go back a couple of chapters, it's at that point that David is anointed king over all of Israel. Saul was king before him. There was a big civil war. Now David is anointed king. And in that same chapter where he's anointed, David captures Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And additionally, he strikes down the Philistines. So then in 2 Samuel 6, we have David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And just after he brings the ark there is death there is uh, a little bit of chaos which always makes for a good story and the ark is uh, put back in kind of temporary housing it's it's realized by David and by the community that maybe this isn't the appropriate way to go about this
0: yeah great so I I feel like I see better where we are in the David story at this point but um, this, this passage is about David wanting to build a temple for God. Why would he want to do that, and why would he want to do that right now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and one that uh, you and I had a lot of guesses about. So we brought in our resident expert, Jacob Wright, and he had some really helpful background on this. Um, so maybe this is a good time to bring Jacob into the conversation.
0: Sorry, I'm congested. Um, I'm going <laughs> yeah, that, oh, to totally use that. Yeah, that's totally
1: making it in the podcast. I'll
0: <laughs> well, just to say what your name is and what your job is. That, basically. <laughs> okay. Is he associated? Okay. Hi, I'm Jacob Wright. I
3: teach Hebrew Bible at Emory University in Candler School of Theology. Jacob's um, a
0: prolific scholar whose first book, Rebuilding Identity, which is about Nehemiah, won a Templeton Award for Theological Promise, which is a pretty big deal in this field. He's also written quite a bit about David and has a great book out called David, King of Israel and Caleb in Biblical Memory.
1: Which also won a couple of awards.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into a couple of the topics from that book in in our conversation today.
1: Jacob is also Jewish and he speaks at synagogues in Atlanta and other parts of the world on topics related to the Bible and to theology and... In
3: the Candler School of Theology, which is the school of theology or divinity school for Emory University. I get to share kind of a Jewish perspective on the Hebrew Scriptures to these students and they seem to appreciate it. And he also says some pretty nice things about his graduate students. Oh, yes he does. We have some of the finest (laughs) Hebrew Bible um, students in the country, in the world perhaps.
1: (laughs) We didn't pay him to say that, but we definitely wanted to get it in here. So first of all, we asked Jacob about the historical context of 2 Samuel 7. Again, getting back to that question about why would David want to build a temple at this point in time?
3: So um, I did a lot of work on this subject of name making because it is a prominent uh, tapos or literary theme that we have throughout Mesopotamian texts. Kings make names for themselves in various ways, and they'll make a name for themselves like mm-hmm. through great feats. Mm-hmm. And a great feat would be something to make one famous. Fame and name are very connected there. So if you did something exceptional, then you will be remembered. And that's not very different from what we have in our society today. We want to be recognized as distinctive. So in the ancient world, making a great name was maybe through your erudition, like Solomon became very famous for his wisdom, or doing some great heroic exploit, taking down a monster like Gilgamesh in the Gilgamesh epic, or taking down great... Uh, foes and um, really conquering new territories and on the battlefield once you did conquer the foe you would set up a memorial and the memorial was often called a name you um, would go back to the palace and refer to these things and with different kinds of monuments different kinds of palaces built different kinds of temples and so forth so once he has conquered all the enemies and God has giving rest from the enemies around, then David wants to immediately build a temple because that would be, in a ruler's mind in the ancient Near East, the default mode. So making a name is, as David does through his military deeds, but the other kind of name-making that you do is in the second part of your career, and that is through building projects, and building projects that glorify your deity, ostensibly, but also that bring in a very concrete expression glory to your own name you're the one who built this these were your memorials that you built in to commemorate your battles that you won and of course all of this is put in the theological language of thanksgiving to god who had delivered me from my enemies
0: um, so maybe i can give a little bit of a preaching angle uh, from that perspective especially if we happen to be preaching within a church or denomination that's aging and shrinking A lot of thought gets put into legacy. What can we leave behind that honors God and honors the history that we've had together? But how much are these thoughts and conversations mixed with the desire to make names for ourselves? What are some of the theological issues at play in working on legacy in our churches? How do we tend to use God and maybe our piety and our, our efforts at legacy building to make a name for ourselves? What would it look like in your church to actually put your energy towards serving God rather than using God to serve us?
1: Yeah, amen. I think it's a really important point. As you were talking, what came to my mind was, yeah, man, how many pastors have been through building projects where the initial impetus for the building project was to glorify God or to serve God's people? And how quickly can it devolve into infighting and being about our donors and being about, look at what we did. We built this amazing thing together, quite literally.
0: The next section of this text would be verses 4 through Mm 7. This is where we have uh, Nathan uh, hearing from God in the night that his initial advice to David was dead wrong.
1: Yeah, let's just say, I don't want to be the prophet who has to wake up the king in the middle of the night and say, uh, excuse me? (laughs) Yeah. And here we have the very interesting idea of a tent and a tabernacle.
0: Yeah, again, we have a couple different institutions colliding here. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what what was the tabernacle? What is that referring to?
1: Even better, maybe we could have Jacob do it.
0: Uh Uh-huh, good idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
0: so the
3: tabernacle is a tent that is a portable way for the people of Israel to have some kind of semblance of the temple, even when the temple is um, not yet built. The tabernacle then can be taken with them, and the, the presence of God then accompanies the people of Israel as they move from bondage to liberation in their land. The tabernacle would kind of get to the heart of Israel's existence as something that is much more dependent upon God and does not have such firm claims to an enduring kind of architectural symbol of self-reliance. The ideal, though, is to have that tabernacle be given up for the temple. In this text, there is this transition from this ephemerality of the tabernacle or of this kind of migratory existence of Israel Mm. to a sedentary existence. Mm. And this is also uh, theological at its core. Walter Brueggemann makes a huge deal about, and I take issue with it, makes a huge deal about the transitory nature of the tabernacle. But the ideal is eventually to have some kind of steadfastness, mm. that it's not just going to be, we're not here for a little while, we have to move on, but the temple should be built. Mm. Temple and kingdom go together. The kingdom is built when enemies are routed and some kind of boundaries, established borders, and that's what makes a kingdom. You have a safe space, mm. that safe place that is promised here. Okay. But what goes hand in hand with that is, once that is once those enemies are eradicated and you've created that space, that you also give glory to the deity through the erection of a new kind of temple, something that's very, not just a tent, but something that represents that this land was conquered. It's this piece of land that the deity has chosen to place the deity's name. And it is the ideal it's w- to which all of this narrative is pushing from Genesis all the way here, And to see the migratory status Mm -hmm. of Israel as the ideal, as in Brueggemann's theology, Mm -hmm. is to miss the point. Mm -hmm. The ideal could have been established with the temple and without the sin that encompasses it. And the idea idea is to create a society once again that is a real strong Mm -hmm. space to protect the people from their enemies Mm -hmm. without the corruption that ensues with it it's a it's a dualism within the hebrew bible that can't be played off against each other too heavily the ideal is to be a people even without a state Mm -hmm. but they need a state at some point as protection even though that state can commit a lot of grave problems both against its own people and against others Mm
1: -hmm.
3: and but the ideal is not just to give up on the state altogether Mm -hmm. and that's what the hebrew Bible is kind of doing
1: i want to i want to highlight something that jacob just said we can get into the habit of romanticizing or idealizing things which actually have an ambivalent representation in the Bible. Uh, Lately, there's been a little bit of a trend in scholarship to talk about the ideal version of God's relationship with the people, which is to be nomads in the desert relying on nothing but god and again that that sure sounds good for a sermon doesn't it
0: and there's a stream of that in the in the text right
1: exactly absolutely there's also a stream however which understands the ideal to be being settled Being with a state, being with a temple and institutions which guard you from the very chaotic and dangerous wilderness in which nomads have to live. So there are a couple different strands going on here. And what we don't want to do is lift up one without lifting up the other as well.
0: Right, because both of them are in a way their intention in this passage, because on the one hand, God's perfectly fine with being in the tent And sort of the the rhetoric there is lifting up this nomadic ideal as being just just fine with God. And yet also there is a sense of establishment and and permanence Mm -hmm. in what God is doing with David and with David's descendants. So you have both of those traditions in the same speech from God, which are just sort of held there in tension without that tension being resolved.
1: Yeah, which, you know, honestly, that almost preaches better than anything the capacity of God to hold opposing ideas in tension and to have that be okay.
0: Yeah, I I tell students here that the Bible is full of wrinkles, and the worst thing to do is to try to iron them all out. Oh,
1: amen. Amen.
0: I'm curious what you think. um, Why do you think God is so hesitant about the temple idea at first?
1: Why are you asking me all the questions? (laughs) You answer that one, sir. (laughs)
0: Because I'm good at thinking of questions and I'm not <laughs> terrible at thinking of answers. I figured I'd ask the smart one.
1: I'm not the smart one. I just don't know. I have less of a filter.
0: <laughs> so, what did I ask?
1: Why is God hesitant about the temple idea at first?
0: Oh, that's a great question, <laughs> I don't know. It, it always it, It's Ever since I've started looking carefully at this text, it's bugged me because it's not that god says no to the temple god just says not right now and not you (laughs) maybe that's maybe that's a part of that tension that uh that the answer from god about all of this is both a yes and a no to david Mm -hmm. and so that that ambivalence that ambiguity is just just there Mm -hmm. and it just sits there Mm -hmm. so that takes us right into verses 8 through 11 or the first part of 11 at least where uh in this prophetic message, God is talking through Nathan about making a name for David,
1: one of my favorite parts of this whole text is what God says in uh, verse eight to david through uh, through Nathan. further, say thus to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the flock to be ruler of my people, Israel. and uh, and Yeah, so
0: listen up, shepherd boy.
1: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Let's be real clear on where you came from and who brought you here.
0: (laughs) So, I mean, maybe that does get back to our question about why the hesitation from God about this building of a temple, that uh, in a way there's uh, a bit of a power dynamic here Mm -hmm. um, in the way that David wants to do something for God, and uh who knows maybe his motives were totally pure in that on the other hand uh god seems to want to make it clear in this that god makes a name for david that david's not going to make a name for god
1: mhm
0: mhm so we've talked about preaching in our conversation mm-hmm. we could give just a couple more potential preaching angles for a text like this
1: yeah so first of all what are the power relationships that are being described in this text um you have Nathan. Is his speedy acquiescence to David somewhat symptomatic of the way we react when approached by powerful people, by financial donors? Um, Is it that much harder in that instance to wait for the word of God to come to us when the issue is clouded by power
0: and and if God needed to correct our uh, committee in church about some action that we were taking, how would we even know mm. that God was giving us an alternate to our presumption that would that would be worth talking about in a sermon, I mm-hmm. think
1: absolutely, absolutely what else? Well, you talked about name making and legacy building. And I think that's a good, that's actually a good uh, connecting point to another preaching angle that I see, which is this idea that David's actions are interwoven with politics and with changing destinies for people's lives. And it makes you start to think, what are the areas in my life where I impact other people in a big way? What are the areas where I I'm not only making decisions, but I'm making decisions that change other people's lives, that are intertwined with other people's lives. And what is God calling me to in those situations?
0: We talked about wanting to draw attention to some linguistic features in these texts as well, right? And uh, one of the key words that comes up in this section is the word place. In Hebrew, it's makom. And uh, we had Jacob address that.
3: Oh, That's a big question. I don't know if I can get it all of it, but Macomb, in many cases, uh, refers to a very particular place, and it's the place as a holy place where one would worship the deity. We find that throughout Deuteronomy, where God commands Israel in the place that I shall place my name, there you shall offer sacrifices and so forth. So there's a centralization of the various places, holy places that dotted the landscape of ancient Israel, where the, the national God of Israel would have been worshipped, but also maybe other deities. But places become the place within the Hebrew Bible. And here we have mm-hmm. that place being identified as Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And it's in competition with other kinds of cultic centers, like in Samaria and later mm-hmm. throughout the in, all the way into Egypt and so forth. So there is that element of sacrality of place.
1: Yeah, I just love that idea of place. I love that idea of makom. It makes me think of Psalm 1. The ones who are firmly rooted in the word of God and the Torah, the teaching, the law, the instruction, they are planted like trees by streams of water. They are given a solid and nurturing and growing place. And I just love that idea. And
0: the the theological reverberations in that word are really significant for this passage, too, in that God is, is saying that God will give the people a, a holy place where they can interact with God. Mm-hmm. And that that uh, is not necessarily going to be something that David puts together, but it's something that God is doing unilaterally
1: mm-hmm.
0: for the sake of the people.
1: Mm-hmm. As much as we may want to, we are not the ones who make holy places. It is God who makes holy places and who makes places holy. And then connected to that, of course, this is my Lutheran coming out at me, but the idea that we are not the ones who make holy people. It is God who makes holy people and God who makes people holy.
0: I didn't know you spoke Lutheran.
1: <laughs> Fluently, my friend. <laughs>
0: well, as we move into the last chunk of this text, maybe another uh, Hebrew term to bring out is the term house bite and the way that it's used in a uh, punny way mm-hmm. in this text.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's not bite, like stop biting your brother. It's more like buy it. Like buy it now. I don't know. Ign- <laughs> cut that all out. <laughs>
0: But it's good enough for us to call it a house. (laughs) That sort of works in English to get a little bit of the the double meaning. As David has offered to build a bayat for God, God turns that around and says, No, I'm going to build a bayat for you.
1: And it shall be an everlasting one. All of that in Hebrew is the same word, bayat. Let's get into real quick uh, the cut off that the lectionary gives us. So, 14a.
0: So just to to recap where that is, this is where God says, I will be a father to him, to the, the heir of David's throne. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And that's where the reading cuts off, according to the lectionary.
1: And when you stop there, who does it make you think of, Tim? Jesus? (laughs)
0: Jesus? <laughs> that's
1: the, the correct answer at every children's sermon. <laughs> right. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It sounds like it's a direct prophecy.
0: So do you think that's wrong?
1: Well, the text doesn't end there. 14 completely reads, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will chastise him with the rod of men and the affliction of mortals.
0: Yeah, that happened to Jesus, right? When he when he did wrong, when he committed iniquity, uh, that's a little problematic, uh, right?
1: A tiny bit. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So um, what do we do with that?
1: There's no law that says you have to stop at 14a. I will never withdraw my favor, favor from him as I withdrew it from Saul. Your house and your kingship shall be secure before you. Your throne shall be established forever. You stop at 14a, you miss all of the places that God is driving home the surety and the guarantee of this promise to David.
0: Right, because we need a God who keeps promises, right? Amen. Right, that's that's why I would probably classify this... Uh, cutting off of the passage at 14a as an exegetical pitfall mm-hmm. because it's one of those places where it gives, uh, if we take that and interpret it as speaking directly about Jesus, it's sort of a preaching cop-out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's an easy out, which doesn't make preachers and congregations and Christians wrestle with the primary meaning of this text.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: It's like we were joking about the Sunday school answer of Jesus is the answer yeah. to every question. There, You can make a theological argument that Jesus is the answer to every question. Mm-hmm. But the reason we call that a Sunday School answer is because it's immature. Mm-hmm. It's, there, there is more to be said about this text mm-hmm. than that it's just talking about God's relationship to Jesus. Mm-hmm. From that perspective, 14b through 16 is really significant mm-hmm. because it's talking about the immediate descendants of David and their uh, responsibility and their privilege and their role as leaders of God's people mm-hmm during the actual monarchy of Israel and Judah. And it also talks about the challenges that they're going to face and that when they're unfaithful to God, God will discipline them with, uh, how's it it put, the the rods such as mortals use, Mm -hmm. which was military conquest. Mm -hmm. And we see that happening as a kind of pattern as the story unfolds. That uh, and there's there's a, a theology embedded in that that we miss if we jump straight from here to Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm. In closing, I would say, think of a cake. Do you only ever want to eat the frosting? And if we only ever eat the frosting of the New Testament, and we never dive deep into the cake and into that delicious middle layer of frosting or jam, which is sometimes in between the cake and then the different kind of cake that comes underneath, we miss the way it all works together, the way it's all supposed to come together in these different flavors and these different stories and these different textures, which come out as something really rich and delicious and beautiful. But you're going to miss all of that if you only ever eat the frosting.
0: Well, before we all run out to grab a pastry. <laughs> Let's say thanks to our our guests. Special thanks this week to my mom, Kathy McNinch, for reading the text for us.
1: And doing it beautifully and powerfully and bringing me to
0: tears.
1: (laughs) Thanks also to Jacob for lending us your brains and your time for an hour.
0: Music this week was by Blue Dot Sessions and Kevin McLeod. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'd really love to hear what you think about the podcast. You can leave us some feedback at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com.